everyone. Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Tyler Bird. I'm your host today. Um, and I'm here joined with Jeffrey Roman. Uh, how are you doing today, Jeffrey? How's it going? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Uh, I know uh, Tobias was just saying he, it's really hot there. For us, we had a really hot day yesterday and today it's just really humid. But, uh, you know, as long as the air conditioning is working and my office is in the basement of the house, it sort of stays cool. But uh, yeah, things are good here. That's good. That's good to hear. Uh, so it'll be myself and Jeffrey today, and we're joined with our guest, uh, Tobias. <laughs> Tobias. Probably right. fine. <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, Tobias Kuntz. And uh, he is one of the co-founders of a company that you probably heard of. It became OpenShift at Red Hat. And uh, another company you might not have heard of yet, but you'll hear of today, which is... Uh, which is called oh, Glasnostic. And I was looking at it earlier to, to get prepared and it seems really interesting. And so I'm super excited for our, our, our guest today. And um, Tobias, how are you doing? And, and uh, how are things going over at uh, Glasnostic? Doing well. Uh, things uh, um, pretty, uh, pretty hot outside and also in the marketplace. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah. Good, good. This episode is sponsored by Gravitational. As your team and cloud infrastructure grows, you may want to reevaluate how you access SSH servers and Kubernetes clusters. Gravitational Teleport is an emerging open source replacement for OpenSSH, which was built for modern cloud workflows. Teleport is opinionated. It does not allow SSH keys, and instead it insists on certificate-based authentication, making it dead easy to set up and use. Teleport is fully compatible with your SSH and Kubernetes tooling, comes with a beautiful web UI and an audit log, and it allows users to access servers outside of data centers like IoT devices. It was called Teleport because it creates the illusion that all your company's servers are in the same room with you, even if some of them are self-driving vehicles. Download Teleport on gravitational.com slash teleport or find it on github.com slash gravitational slash teleport. Well, yeah, so let's just kind of get into it. The, what we're talking about today is um, controlling the digital landscape and what that means in a kind of a post-microarchitecture world. Um, we've all decided that um, breaking, breaking things into microservices is a good idea, that everything's pretty much just now a service. Um, but what does that mean for operators and uh, large-scale enterprises? Um, so, so yeah, one of the things that I was first interested in this is, is um, service meshes. And, and so let's define for everyone what a service mesh is. And I'll give a, a possible uh, definition, and I would love to hear your definition as well, uh, Tobias. So um, Absolutely. essentially, a service mesh for me is, is something that allows for the applications, the different applications to share information, metadata, or other information to each other. Kind of what's, what's your yeah. definition of the service? Yeah, so the classical definition is always it's, an, you know, it's, a, it's a dedicated infrastructure layer for, um, to allow um, to take care of security, um, intelligent routing, uh, metrics, uh, policies, right? Um, all these shared concerns that you don't want to like write all the time, every time, single time, in every single library, every single piece of code you write, right? It should be mm -hmm. decentralized. It should be like pulled out of the code, centralized somewhere, and made available as a separate um, infrastructure layer, right? 
And there's absolute truth to that, makes a lot of sense, in particular from an engineering perspective, right? So I would define a service mesh as the attempt to just make service-to-service -service communication better, right? Easier um, to centralize certain aspects of that, just boilerplate code, things you have to do all the time. Don't think about this in code every, with, on every single call, right? Because with microservices, yeah. way more network calls, right? What used to be function calls now are network calls in a you know to a large uh, large extent. Mm -hmm. So actually, it's interesting because when I left Red Hat, I thought I would build something that today you would call a service mesh, right? <laughs> that had exactly that perspective, right? We are developers; we live in our IDE. Um, I want to call you know look out for my IDE. I would just want to call a service because I need that return, right? That result code and um, that data back, and um, I don't care who I'm calling, just you know, do it for me. Just connect me with something and connect me with the best instance, right? And while you're doing this, might as well also, you know, uh, meter there or might as well also, um, you know, encrypt at that point. So I don't have to deal with that, right? Again, it's a concern I don't really care much about as a developer. Um, so that makes perfect sense because I kind of get shielded from all that network stuff, which can get difficult, right? Um, retries, you know, what happened to that? I'm not... How, how long am I supposed to wait, right? Timeouts, all this stuff, it gets, gets complicated very quickly. Um, so, but then when I started building that um, or something like that, right? It was in the time when Finagle came out out of Twitter. Um, realized very quickly that the real problem is not how we write the code, it's how we operate everything. Because as you may imagine, Everything gets dis disintegrated. <laughs> Everything gets composed more and more. Uh, we're not really writing applications anymore. At that point, the question is, how can it still ensure that everything is stable and secure? Mm -hmm. And that's a concern that's not a development concern necessarily, right? It's not something that I, I can't code in my IDE that's going to be secure. You know, certain aspects of it as yet, other aspects depend on how it's being operated at runtime. So we are focusing entirely on that runtime side of things. And where the runtime becomes important, or I would say most important, is when you're going past the single application, right? If you're a San Francisco startup, 10 people, you've got one product, you've got exactly one application, right? You're gonna build this exactly the same way like we built applications 50 years ago, right? Just with different technology, but Essentially, the logic is all in one repository. It's in one, it's under one ownership, right? Enterprises don't work that way. They're way more complex. There you're looking at generations of integrations. Right? People don't even live anymore who wrote the code that makes the money, right? Yeah, potentially. Um, still, everything builds on top of that, right? So you have layers and layers and layers of code, layers of systems, crazy integrations, no documentation, right? And everything needs to be continually um, updated. Imagine, you know, it's, it's like a city that you look at it from a bird's eye perspective, everything changes all the time. Because mm. at any given time, there are 500 cranes in New York City building, right? That's kind of like how the enterprise works, right? And it's fundamentally different from uh, a small application startup. Yeah, and day to day, you wouldn't necessarily see the change, but then you have a time-lapse photo. Exactly. And over time, if you have a time-lapse photo, what it illuminates is the idea that things have changed quite a bit yes. over a period of time. 
And so is that kind of part of the feeling here is, is getting that different perspective of what Absolutely. seems like is not changing, but is actively changing. Absolutely. It's a const, constant organic growth, right? Mm. So I want to say organic, it used to be pejorative, right? Somebody says, well, you know, our architecture is kind of like historically grown. <laughs> it always means it's a piece of shit. <laughs> it's just, sure. it happened to be, uh, be that. But um, I would see this as a positive thing. Organic grown means it's adapting to whatever is needed at that given time. And then you deal with it. Right. And by the way, that's the only way we build anything that's large. Right. Um, anything we do grows organically. Uh, we, we start in small experiments. We expand it. Right. We put things together. We try to outsource other things. And it's, it's always a, a, you know, complex project. So um, organic growth is the key ingredient in today's infrastructures, application landscapes. Right. Yeah, I like that. Um, and I come from a PaaS um, background myself. Uh, I started at engineering, which I, mm -hmm. I, I imagine you've heard of. Absolutely. Um, yeah. For those who might not have heard of it, it was essentially a competitor to Heroku, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a developer's playground for rapidly uh, prototyping apps and, and these type of things. And uh, uh, one of the things you wrote about was that uh, that OpenShift was you know, had the, had the soul of, uh, of Heroku for, for the enterprise. Hmm. So coming from that uh, platform background that I have, and then now the last four years, I've been uh, consulting with Cloud Foundry yeah. and doing a lot of platform stuff. So platform, I, I started reading today's thing. I was like, oh, I wish I would have had more time to prepare because I've just been preparing <laughs> today because uh, I probably have a billion questions for you. Um, so maybe we can continue this online or do a second episode or something. But, um, but yes, uh, platforms, I think, are underrated in the sense that um, just like most operational systems, when they just work, they're invisible. So what visibility do we get from uh, a glass Gnostic that helps to make fully operational things fully visible? Yeah. So that's, I think, that's another really, really great question and important question. That's the key difference between what we are doing and what almost everybody else is doing in the Cloud Native Compute uh, Foundation. Um, so I see I'm a simple guy. I like to see the world in simple terms. If you look at two axes, right? On the horizontal axis, we have all our developer concerns. We build code. We care about requests calling other function, right, other services, and it's an it's a threat of execution view. Um, and typically, that's when we want to see tracing. That's when we want to be you know debugging things. How much is the latency here in my call? What's the cumulative latency? You know, what are the error returns and um, things like that. That is totally important at a local level. As I'm writing code, I want to see how does it fare in production, how does it execute, and these kind of things. I'm starting as a developer again. I'm growing my understanding of my code organically. I'm starting with the happy path, implementing that, then adding more and more conditions, making them more you know more robust. It's, that's natural way of you know writing the code, and then I want to see it execute. That's the left to right and all the way back perspective on things, right? And that's how we think about operating things, right? That model, of course, falls flat on the face if I have many teams deploying in parallel. 
going back to the New York uh, example, right? If things sprout all over the place and change all over the place and call each other, right? Because none, none of these applications are, are islands, right? They're all connected. So I'm living in a world of constant change, thousands of deployments in the entire enterprise over the, day, over the course of a day, right? Not all of them important, but, you know, a lot of deployments. Every change potentially uh, bringing, uh, bringing um, outages with them, right? In that kind of situation, the vertical axis matters. Vertical axis is like, how does everything affect each other, right? Noisy neighbors, ripple effects, compounding failures, right? You name it, all these environmental factors that threaten to bring the application landscape down, right? And those are infinitely more important than fixing a bug in code. Ultimately, fixing a bug in code is very easy. There's lots of tools. There's, it's, you find the bug, oh yeah, stupid me, you know, I didn't think about that, let's fix it, done, redeploy, done. That's simple, right? Um, what's really difficult is the management task, how do 50, 100, 500 applications work together, independent of each other, even though a lot of things are shared, starting with shared services, shared execution environments, right? Um, all these kind of things. And that is where the operational task becomes um, crazy complex. And that's exactly what we are tackling, making these dependencies visible and more importantly, controllable at runtime. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Interesting. Jeffrey, did you have anything to add real quick? I was looking something up. I just wanted to give you that. Yeah, I, I just, so I, I've sort of just been listening. You know, my background is really on the security side. Um, and, you know, having worked, um, you know, really pure security too. And, and having worked with um, a lot of development teams over the years, you know, I think one of the challenges that we have, um, you know, from the, just to, again, just this sort of pure application security perspective is, you know, sort of getting in front of um, a body of code, trying to understand um, from a threat modeling perspective, what do I need to be concerned about? Um, where are the real threats? Um, from a tooling perspective, our concerns are always, you know, if we're using our our standard sort of tool set, we're thinking about things like static, um, you know, is, is static um, set of tooling for, you know, looking at code and saying, okay, can we find possible security defects? Um, how do we analyze that? How do we get our arms around that? Um, you know, dynamic scanning against web applications, that's typically how we do it. Um, and I sort of wonder, this is sort of, I'm um, sort of, you know, as, as you were speaking, uh, Tobias, I, I was really sort of thinking about how do I, if I were in this environment that you're describing, um, you know, clearly this platform is very, um, it, it's part and parcel. I mean, it, it's really, you know, from the security standpoint, it's really sort of the nuts and bolts, it, it seems like. Um, and something that we would want to get our arms around. And yet, you know, as you said, it's sort of constantly changing and certainly um, sort of begs the question about how do we continually, um, not just, you know, unfortunately too often we see where, you know, security gets injected at specific milestones or at, you know, whatever, we're doing it annually. You know, it just becomes a calendar event as opposed to something, anything that's yeah. really sort of um, intelligently scheduled. Mm -hmm. um, so, sorry, that was a huge preamble, <laughs> but I'm sort of wondering, um, 
you know, how, how you envision, you know, again, just, you know, whether the security team is, is, is part of your dev team or whether it's, you know, apart from them, regardless, but how are we, you know, sort of um, tooling, instrumenting, um, you know, trying to detect where those, you know, wh where those issues could be, you know, you know, within the platform? Yeah. I love that question. I love it because in the field, you typically find people concerned with security and people concerned with performance, right? And they don't understand each other, right? <laughs> they have no clue. I see it's a spectrum, right? And it's the spectrum of we all live in a world where we need to be able to control things we don't own. Security, very clearly, we don't own any of that code. We're responsible for making sure it's being used properly, right? And on the performance side, and as, as you get away from security, and then the next step is availability, right? And then you get to like general stability, and then you get to performance. And that, that end of the spectrum, you typically just care about code. How can I shave another like half percent of a MySQL call, these kind of things, right? Which are completely, completely inconsequential. Um, unless <laughs> um, you save in data center costs, right? But um, it, at a Google scale. But <clears throat> it's a spectrum, right? And the spectrum is that you need to shield what you're doing from external influences, right? And that's for same thing for performance in a distributed, decentralized scenario where my code depends on 20 other services, 50 other services, I'm 100% dependent. My performance depends on how these things perform. So how do I govern that stability and performance side of the spectrum? And then you realize it's this, you govern this the same way. You deal with security, not at the code vulnerability level. That's a different level. And of course, security is a wide field. But the security community is talking about software-defined perimeters, right? In these decentralized or you know architectures, software-defined perimeters are a table stake, but nobody knows how to do this, right? Um, security, Cloud Security Alliance just came out with a paper on that as well, and great best practices encapsulated in there. But yeah, we are working together with a governmental security agency on exactly that topic because it is so fundamental to them, right? And Going back to what you said about the you know security teams sometimes separate from the deployment teams or the operational teams, absolutely true, right? Different skill set and no understanding between these things. So you end up in many enterprises with two roadblocks, right? We're working today mostly in the industry on like accelerating development all the way on the left side with a shift left testing and all that. Everything gets sped up here. And then it hits, now you get like more things traveling down the deployment pipelines. Now the IT, Roadblock is there. Oh, I don't know what that's going to, I need to test this, test this first, right? No, we can't deploy it in production. You're talking to like 20 of my tier one services. Uh, there's a whole line that takes six months that we need to test, unless you have executive approval, sponsorship, go to the back of the line, right? And then it's tested. Then the security guys come in with the next roadblock. Whoa, we need to first test this whole thing, right? And both these roadblocks are almost you can move them out of the way entirely in, by de-risking the change that comes in. And the only way you can de-risk the change is by having runtime controls, right? 
if I can deploy something and I get to see how it behaves within the first couple of seconds and I can do something about it right away, I can deploy it. If I can't do this, I need to go back and test it for six months. Hmm. I need to run this queue. I need to run this uh, test, uh, test queue, right? And that's why it's so important to not just accelerate the development part with DevOps, right? Which in these architectures that we are driving, uh, running today is way too slow. DevOps is too slow. You can't afford to package, to build, plan, build, test, package, uh, deploy, operate, monitor, and then go back once, you know, if you, if you found a bug, to go back to the planning phase and wait for the next deployment to fix that, to, you know, to patch that. You can't afford to wait on a patch. You need to have the ability. That's why you say it's a ninth phase in the DevOps cycle. The ability to mission control operate that in runtime, right? That's, that's what we're all about, right? Mission control. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Awesome. Um, and I really recommend everyone go to Glassnostic and try to book a demo. That's what I'm probably going to be doing next yep. is to try to get more into it. Um, and we'll have the link in, in the show notes. But uh, the, the question I have with, with regard to that is um, what, what can Glassnostic not do to kind of put you on the spot? Meaning, um, is there, have you encountered some sort of legacy app that's basically has pretty much no um, SOAP interface or API or anything like that, that you guys can't, uh, because the claim on the website is that you guys do it agentless and, and we don't you know, have to install anything. So yeah. I guess I have two questions. Number one is, is there anything you can't, you haven't been able to add to your, to your um, select star all and get all the mm. results. And then number two, that if you, if someone's if someone is using this, where where was I going with that one? Dang it! It was all right. Let's let's focus on the uh, the first one, and it will probably come back to yeah. me. So, yeah. is there anything that you you've had so far that uh, you you can't uh, be completely agnostic about? Yeah, we can't control the cell phone to the cell tower. <laughs> right, that's the area that we can't control. Um, what we can do is mainframes. From mainframe to serverless, anything that speaks IP, we can see and we can uh, do something about, right? And the way we do that is simply by being a bump in the wire. That means we are agentless. We do not have to be at the workload because ultimately, think, think again, but we're not a monitoring solution. We don't need agents, right? Monitoring in these modern infrastructures is a completely local concern. I write some code. I have ownership over that. My, that's my horizon of responsibility. Yes, I want to debug. Yes, I want to see exactly what the value of this variable was and the stack maybe at that point, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, 
So I always want deep data. But at least since Nagios, we know that looking at 50 on a different colored timelines is, is crap, right? It completely says nothing, right? When was the last time you cared about like how many sockets are in close weight? I don't know, right? Uh, I don't even remember, right? It's like that kind of stuff is completely immaterial. Google started this revolution in like, what was it, 2000s, right? When they went off and went to commodity hardware and just had a forklift, you know, <laughs> drive by the data center like once, once a week and pull out the dead machines. And that's just, an, it's a function of everything slowly moving up the stack. We're in an automation-rich environment, right? There's so much tooling. There's so much technology, languages, frameworks, right? Um, uh, cloud services. Everything is a Lego block. And we build these Lego blocks together. So the towers, is the layers get higher and higher. Everything has some sort of automation behind it, right? And we need to remind ourselves that automation, the, current, the point of automation is not to not have to do something anymore. The point of automation is to now have a new vocabulary. I'm automating a deployment, so now I can, I can argue with deployments, which I couldn't do before, right? I automate something, so I have a new noun, right? A new Lego block, right? Um, so to close the circle, right? We are, um, the monitoring piece becomes, needs to move up the stack to where the action is. Now, automation goes all the way up to the, the top level architectural view. That's where we need to monitor. That means we need to look at the forest and not the trees anymore, right? And our gut reaction is always, because that's how we grew up building systems. Oh, let's look at file descriptors. <laughs> you talked to, uh, like before Multics came up to one to a software engineer, file descriptor was in, like a frivolous high-level abstraction. <laughs> and so that just needs to continue. So we, our analogy is always, we care about the airspace, right? If you have many flights going on, not right now under COVID, but if you have many flights going on, you can have a, as many flight plans as you, as you want. You need air traffic control. And the air traffic control doesn't care about what, what kind of food is served on the plane or what movie is playing or you know, whether some passengers are freaking out or even how much fuel there is on the plane. They only care about golden signals, position, altitude, direction, speed of every single flying object, maybe plus a little bit of weather uh, data, right? So, because their concern is the safety and stability of the airspace, not the individual flight operation, right? And as we're building these decentralized architectures, these digital landscapes, right? Because the business, everything the business does requires software. And the business ideas come in the morning. And why can't I have the software run in the afternoon? Right? Because I'm building on top of something. I already have 90% of what I need. I just need to like, add a couple like pixie dust on top. Why can't I have this? And it's an operational problem. It's not, it's, it's not a software engineering problem, right? So you need to take the global systemic view, golden signals, and then have the ability to apply operational primitives in real time. That's the whole recipe for success. It, you know, um, in a previous session, um, we uh, 
we were talking about um, the Unicorn Project, you know, the book uh, by mm. Jin Kim. And it's interesting because, you know, the basic premise there is that we're really sort of looking at how do you, um, you know, sort of enable your organization to be agile. So you're sort of moving from it, you know, um, moving away and, and not thinking about the operation standpoint from it. But there's so much more when we look at, um, <clears throat> you know, culturally and, um, you know, just holistically, how do we get an organization to be a bit more agile, to be more focused on core versus context, uh, which is a really interesting concept, I think, that's brought mm -hmm. up. But um, it, it almost sounds like, and again, you know, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, 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 um, a platform guy, so I, I'm, you know, maybe I'm totally off base here, but it almost feels like what you're describing is sort of that this, this way of sort of enabling your organization, at least from the technology, from the platform side, enabling your organization um, to be able to sort of, um, uh, you know, get all your pieces in place, but to be able to be more agile, to be able to focus on what's more important, um, sort of get out of the way of the stuff that's, you know, from the stuff that's not. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if, you know. No, it, absolutely. it makes perfect sense. Yes, absolutely. Right. It's all about accelerating, like the like to say, MTDV, mean time to value. Right. And once you, every acceleration you manage massively benefits your company. Right. Because today, and everything is difficult if it takes a week to implement a, f a feature because my code is so complex, even at the code level, right? My code is so complex that I, I, need to, I need four hours of maximum concentration a day to make sure I'm not breaking anything. I can't be agile, right? And then every, there's knock-on effects. Everything becomes slow now because this change request, oh, it's gonna take me two weeks. Because now first I need to swap all this thinking back in. That takes me a week. Then I need eight hours of uninterrupted work and, you know, and so forth. Same thing happens on the operational side. Everything that's complex is killing you. I'm a big fan of the notion that we're living in a post-distributed systems world. Right? We grew up in the thinking that, oh, distributed systems is the black belt of software engineering. It's not. It's cancer. There is no need for distributed systems almost anywhere, right? Um, if you build distributed systems, there's like some niche, yes, where you, but those things have been solved. If you run a business and your people build a distributed system, I think alarm bells should go on. Yeah, it should, it should, it should go off. Yeah, because essentially your guys, you're paying guys to build a Ferrari engine, right? Where everything is hand machined for performance. And yes, the, the engine is awesome, but every 500 miles, you need a mechanic to, 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 uh, to redo the engine, right? Because there's so much physical stress on it, right? The breaking points are so, you know, performance is so high, it's going to break all the time. That is a killer for your business. So you need to be much more nimble. And nimble means you need to compose, right? You need to realize that even in nature, there is no distributed system in nature. Right? There's no such thing as a Cassandra or like, <laughs> it doesn't exist, right? Um, everything is evented. You need to build compensation strategies in your code. Otherwise, you're going to die very soon. Um, you need to have a very flexible, um, resilient code base to begin with. And then 
you can compose. And that gives you speed. Only that. So treat everything like a Lego block. And in the entire organization, I think Amazon spearheaded that, um, Jeff Bezos with his um, mandate that everybody writes a memo, right? Um, everything that gets put in place has an API, which by defin definition means it becomes a Lego block, right? And also by extension, by the way, means I can't architect anymore, right? If I have an API, I deploy something, I don't know who's gonna call me tomorrow. By definition, I cannot architect, right? We are not recognizing this. We're not recognizing that architecture is the last waterfall thing we do and should be done at runtime. Because if you can't predict, you need to do this when it's happening, right? So the notion that we can build a system, plan it, blueprint it, and then build it, and then it's gonna run for X, X amount of years and at any scale, right, is patently wrong, right? So yeah, agility is super important. Um, and I think we get a lot of agility from the layers that we have been built before, the backs mm -hmm. that we stand stood upon. Do you think that Glasnostic uh, could have existed before um, this distributed revolution? Would it have no. even been emerged as a problem? No. I think the market is emerging, right? Our customers are at the forefront of this, right? And there's plenty of organizations still that grapple with what I would call cloud complexity in several stages of denial. <laughs> um, they're not as many as like in, in, in brief, but <laughs> it's very similar, right? The first one is where you talk to the VP engineering and he says, yeah, 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 things are kind of messy, but I'm going to get my guys to not write bugs anymore, right? I'm here, I'm the guy, it's man versus machine, and I'm going to win. That guy is out six months later, the company is in a worse place than before, right? Because you can't prevent these things in code. You can't prevent co uh, complexity in code. Then the next, the next stage, and that's interesting for the two of us, Tyler, um, is the natural reaction. Well, yeah, yes, yes, there's all this complexity going on. Let's replatform so we can fight complexity with standards, right? Mm -hmm. Totally right. understandable. It's golden master thinking, right? It's the same thing we had 20 years ago. Oh, virtual machines, now we can have golden masters. We release the golden master, a minute later, a new package comes out, the golden master is obsolete, right? And building platforms, a crucial piece of technology is not in there. So it becomes immediately half in value <laughs> because you know, I can't really use it. I need to like install my own package now and all that stuff. So there's a huge downside to these approaches as understandable as they are, right? Of course, that's the first reaction. We get confronted with complexity. We don't know how to deal with it. We try to standardize around it, right? Um, third stage typically is then recognizing that it, that didn't help a little bit for a short amount of time, but ultimately not. And now what are we gonna do? And that's when we come to our customers. That's where we pick them up and say, guys, we can help you control that in real time. All the complexity that's going on, and mind you, all these things are nonlinear events, right? Something starts as a CPU problem there, but turns into a latency problem there, then all of a sudden becomes in a um, availability issue over there, right? And it's chains of events. And most of these failures are like an iceberg constantly on the surface, right? 
And then all of a sudden, like, a shape comes up. And that's that throws, throws alerts, right? And then you try that. Then you think that's the issue. It typically isn't. It's a much bigger thing. So we try to make these things visible so you don't have to stress out about them, right? Well, if you think back a couple of weeks ago, Robin Hood went down, right? When lockdown happened, right? Everybody try, uh, tried to trade. Because stock market crash, right? 20, 20% down. Robin Hood went down. Um, they claimed that was a DNS thundering herd, right? Um, so something, hey, how lame is that? If you get a thundering herd, it means you can't do something about it. And right, they couldn't do anything about it. That's why it was down for a day and the second day and the third day, right? They could not, the classic back pressure had zero ability to do that. If they had had something like Lesnastic in the network, they could have seen massive amount of spikes, exert a little bit of back pressure, one at a time, guys, and no outage. Yes, slower service, but no outage, right? So there needs a, sh a shift in thinking needs to happen as you build out these digital landscapes. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. But mind you, every company will build out these landscapes because there's no other way. Distributed systems are way too expensive. <laughs> Takes the slope. Takes the long. Right. Eventually, you hit the complexity wall, as you're yeah. saying. Yeah. And yeah. You, the only way through that obstacle, yeah. which, you know, that's the obstacle is the way is a great book that I recommend. Yeah. Maybe that'll be one of my picks for today. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the obstacle is the way yeah. talks about, you know, when you hit a wall, you just got to go through it. Um, so yeah, I can really see how um, Glassnostic helps to do that. Now, when I say I see this, you know, and I want to dig in as a, as like pro salmon architect at a, at a machine, at a at enterprise, hmm. and I want to do a proof of concept. Right now it says book a demo. I don't see like a download button or these kind of things. So what challenges have you had? What strengths or successes have you had from the, the demo wall versus uh, an installable, you know, Helm chart kind of thing or this or that or whatever? Um, not getting into proprietary stuff or yeah, much, but yeah. like um, giving them enough access to, to give them that first aha moment of what Glassnostic does. Yeah, so we, we are very consumable, but a little bit of a mental shift needs to happen. That is the decision why we... So the problem we are tackling is not immediately obvious if you're working in code. Right, because your 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 horizon is a very small one, right? And you look at, to observability, you look to tracing. You think that's going to solve your issues, right? Which it does at the local level very much. Um, it doesn't help you at all with dependencies you don't own, right? You don't want to trace into that other business unit service because you don't care about it. It's just a service, right? Um, so there's a little shift that needs to happen, and we do this by 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 training people 
on that product. That's why we do not want to have a download. There's a training associate. It doesn't cost anything. It's just we want to make sure they understand what it's supposed to do and don't come back and complain, hey, where can I see my file descriptors? <laughs> yeah, a lot of times right? uh, companies uh, deal with like this, the salesy part of it, meaning yeah. that um, relying on the sales team to put, the, put people through the sales system. And what I mean by that is um, everyone gets put through a sales system and the salesperson is just trying to figure out what is, what is a need, uh, maybe a generic need or what is mm-hmm. a specific need mm-hmm. and how does my app. And then it goes through a human interface that can a lot of times lead to frustration on the customer side because the salesperson doesn't yeah. fully understand the technology and will say, yeah, we can do that for you. Yeah. And the, yeah. the, the problem that they don't realize that they're doing is basically saying, yeah, um, the hospital's down on the end of the road on the right. There's no yeah. problem. They'll, they'll take you for it. But it's actually on the left, and it's a, it's important to know the mm-hmm. distinction, right? Yeah. And so, what I'm what I'm saying with that is that um, with the with the sale with the I can see the advantage of what you're saying, and giving people that perspective with with the training, I think is a, is a good tool. Um, is Glassnostic something that is it's 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 target is is of course what what we've been talking about enterprise people, mm. and you know I think even DevOps as I've been founding and I've said multiple times on this podcast that eventually I, I need to help figure out what is the sweet spot of the, the size of a company before they really start to need DevOps. Mm. Um, but with all that being said, the, so my question yeah. is uh, when you get people in the door and they see what Glassnostic can do and how much it might cost, um, how many of those people are, are just like, Yes, we have to we have to do this, and how many are or not? You don't have to give specific numbers or things like that, but it's like um, how many people just get it right away after they've gone through a training and had their paradigms aligned and gotten gotten in the it's door. A, it's a it's a great question because the nature of what we do means like a lot of people are in, immediately interested, then call us up, and then it takes two to three minutes to realize that they probably thought we're doing something slightly different, right? And then they realize, what do we do? And then the typical reaction is, well, I was thinking about this project. I'm now thinking this should apply to the entire company, <laughs> right? Of course, we don't do that. We don't sell to the entire company. We start small, land it, expand, but see like other groups can use this too. Like let them slowly, um, you know, be you know acquainted with a problem uh, uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the product, and so that works really nice for us, right? Um, we in my previous company we had thought for a long time should we open source, right? And uh, same thing, Engine Yard was a service company. You you didn't have to open source. Ruby's the Ruby stack, of course, was fully open source, right? Uh, but there was like intricacies around running it, operating it, like how you you know it was single single threaded. Um, so complexities around that. We had on our platform the problem that we provide an API for how to run applications, right? And that API should be public in the public domain almost, right? And then when we became Red Hat, um, of course, Red Hat being an open source company, the open sourcing part was always a huge question, right? When should we open source? When should we open source? And 
there was so much noise around the open sourcing part that it negatively impacted the development velocity, right? So it's something similar now where we actually don't have a license manager or anything on our you know, deployable piece, the bump in the wire. Um, we have different licensing deals depending on whether it's a SaaS delivery or whether it's on-premise, right? Um, but that's the extent of it. Um, otherwise, we haven't had anybody ask for a full-on downloadable open source version yet, frankly, right? Um, nobody wants to like open up the hood and change something under the hood, right? It's pretty advanced underneath. <laughs> and um, I certainly don't want to like get out of the wrench and do something there. Um, so a lot of like user space networking that happening because it needs to be passed, right? We uh, pass packet switching. And um, so it's kind of like, take it. If you need something done, talk to us. You can take it away, right? Um, as long as the metrics themselves are not being touched, because otherwise we can't deliver value, right? Yeah. That's a pretty inobtrusive story, right? To me, I'm curious that just, you know, what you're describing. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to sort of also mm. foreshadow my, my pick is uh, a seat mm. at the table. <laughs> and it's really got me thinking, you know, um, but for your case, who is you know, who's picking up the phone and, and calling you? Is it, um, you know, is it sort of the classic case of the the CIO CTO who's trying to sort of make this decision for the company, or um, and my sort of guess is that it's probably not. But I'm sort of, I really would like to hear your point of view. Or is it really more of a, I don't know, um, a dev manager um, or even an ops manager who's sort of, sort of looking at things and saying, you know, to your point, wow, the complexity is killing us um, or the time to create a build is killing us or mm. whatever it is yeah. is killing us. And I need this for my little, you know, four corners or, you know, f you know, and then if it, you know, maybe, maybe you, you know, maybe other teams could use this as well, but I know I need it for my project. Yeah. It's a really interesting, uh, interesting question because I would say all our customers have one thing in common. And that is that the operations leaders are the leadership in the company, in the, in the technical organization, right? You have the CIO, all the CIOs immediately get the value proposition that we have, that we bring, right? Immediately, right? Um, they think about these issues every day. Sometimes it's the CTO, sometimes the CIO, it changes, right? Different descriptions, role descriptions. But all our customers have an forward-thinking operations person or security person right underneath. And then they've learned that once the business starts to talk to the technology through the operations people, right, that's when progress happens. Instead of what we all do, business talks to development. And by the nature of things, I'm a developer, right? I don't want to like talk this down at all. You're a couple miles below the ground, right? In a mine. And you don't get the business context, right? You don't know what version of done they're asking for, right? Is it my code compiles? You know, all these thousands of different dones, right? Um, talk to the operations people. 
they know every developer by name. <laughs> they know how they code, right? They can give you a great estimate of when, when it's going to be live and what needs to be done to get that done, right? So that's the interesting piece. Our users have, I would say, the next step to take in an organizational structure, put operations above development. And that's just a matter of scale. At a certain scale, if you're small, a San, again, San Francisco startup, you're writing your own technology. Of course, the technical founder is running everything, right? Um, but at some point, the, the, the distance from idea to actual code and execution is too long. Nobody can understand everything anymore. So you need to kind of devolve the code work a little bit further down. And the more you break this up and you know, deploy incrementally, hundreds, thousands of deployments a day, the operations piece becomes the delivery piece. That's where we see roles like global delivery excellence VPs, right? And these kind of things, right? Where um, they're called upon to like, hey, can you fix our unpredictability, right? Um, still, of course, often in an ITSM mindset and you know, old school mindset that doesn't always work. But um, I would say our customers really, that's the one common theme that operations is above development from a managing up perspective, right? So developers manage up to operations. Yeah, yeah that, that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I'm definitely thinking that uh, we need a, an extra episode because uh, I've, I've still got a few more questions and we're running out of time. <laughs> so I think we're gonna yeah. we're gonna wrap up for for today and uh, you know be in touch uh, and see if we can if we can do some more. Um, maybe even after I've gone through a demo and, and seen it, because I Anytime. like the way you're talking where you're saying people who instantly get it are CIOs. Now I instantly got it, but I'm not CIO yet. So there must be yeah. some miss. Uh, some unbroken uh, corollary there I need to work on. I either need to become CIO of my <laughs> own company or I just need to communicate it. I like the the rest yeah. of the story, which was, you know, you have the people who are kind of forward thinking that are up a few layers below and that kind of stuff. And that's kind of where I land. I see your future, Tyler. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, do, I do see a lot of futures. Well, I, yeah. I've been predicting this type of thing um, for a while, you know, on site with some people because I feel like a lot of times – um, everyone's always trying to install a pane of glass and it's not just about pane of glass and being able to unify, you know, federated platforms that are all mm -hmm. in different places. It's, it's then once you have that pane of glass, well, what do you do with that information? And yeah. that's what excites me the most about this. I think we could go into uh, greater detail in a second, a second episode. So yeah. stay tuned for that. Absolutely. Um, the, so for, for me, my pick this week, we're going to kind of transition into picks. And uh, what we usually do is we have something that uh, everyone's, you know, either been working on lately or, or reading or, or software, these type of different things. You don't necessarily have to have a lot, but uh, I think that today my pick is a book that I enjoy uh, called The Obstacles Way, um, which is talks about stoicism and, and just kind of surrendering into the obstacle that's in front of you and, and uh, the thing that you have to do. And, uh, you know, I, I personally had the belief that if I don't feel resistance at a job, then I'm not growing. Yeah. You know, the idea is like, you can't ever, just like we can't automate everything away, um, you have to have that resistance. And then that, when I don't feel resistance, that's when I know I need to find a new job. 
So it actually excites me and been able to modify me. I get a little frustrated with what's going on that that signals to me, okay, you have the proper amount of resistance right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Work yeah. with it. And and it's actually made me more of a fan of security people myself, Jeffrey, mm-hmm. and those type of things. So, <laughs> yeah, so the obstacles like- away is my is my pick this week. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what about yeah. what about you, Jeffrey? Um, yeah, so I mentioned earlier that you know, a suit the table is something I started reading and and it's and it came about because you know, as I mentioned, you know, we went through the, the Unicorn project, and I think what I thought, what I found um, so valuable about the book in general is all the references, and um, you know, even more so when you go to Jim Kim's website and he, has, he blogged about just the references, the resources that you know, sort of what drove him as he was, um, you know, as he was writing it, um, and this is just one of probably I don't know a dozen or so references that he talks about. Um, but I just think it's so interesting um, getting, um, you know, Mark Schwartz's uh, sort of take on having been a CIO and what is the future. And, you know, it sort of struck me because, you know, we were talking about enterprise today, enterprise IT today. And, um, you know, so often um, just my experience has been you look at a CIO or a CTO and you sort of wonder, like, well, what is there? world what what exactly are they doing um you know once they've sort of set up the system and let's say you know you're you're going forward with some form of agile development process and hopefully you're doing some form of devops or you know trying to uh, automate and you know trying to take on that but now what so if the whole idea is to be agile and and you know tovias was really sort of describing it earlier where you know you're talking about um you know, these the, these teams are really running autonomously and all that. So if they're autonomous and they're just doing their thing and they're working directly with the business and so now what? <laughs> you know, what are these, you know, what is IT leadership? What is their role? And I, I've just uh, just gotten started. So, um, you know, there's no spoiler alerts here, but I think the, the premise is so interesting. And, and my guess is, is that um, there's so many, there's so much legacy that goes on at higher levels of IT. I think that's one of the challenges that we see. Um, and it really hits security hard too. I mean, there's just so much legacy, so much technical debt, so much cultural debt sort of goes on. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to sort of um, see where this goes and, and what some of the ideas are that come out of it. It's a great book. And so is Gene Kim, so is John Willis, right? DevOps Enterprise Summit, a great series of conferences, right? Immense talent there, great, great thinking. I love it. Um, yeah, on my side, um, recently, while well, I run a startup, there's not a lot of reading going on. <laughs> <laughs> but um, obviously, it definitely resonates, uh, resonates with me. Like one of my favorite authors, Endless Reading, Marcus Aurelius, right? meditations um had nine years latin in school so i can pick up a word here or there um otherwise read in translation uh, i don't want to brag but um the um another really good book and pertaining to i think this discussion here actually two books two books um tracy kidder soul of this machine or whatever it's called like from the 60s when they built the first deck alpha machine i think it was um a novel, essentially, how they had to stretch themselves every single day, right? Um, nothing worked, like fiddling with CPU boards with an oscilloscope and these kind of things, right? Everything they did for the, was the first time they did it, right? 
The other book, I, a great book, I think anybody in computer tech should just devour that because it's such the mindset behind it is so amazing. And the other book in a similar spirit is um, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz, right? uh, the flight director of the Apollo program. And that's a guy who is in, you know, on our website <laughs> as, a, as a figure, right? because it's so fitting. right? Because um, the key thing is really, you know, if you think about it, even something like what these guys did with a couple of pairs <laughs> and really a little bit less than a Texas instrument calculator um, is amazing. A bunch of ring binders, right? Lots of cigarettes. Um, so if you read through that, it's again, it's a spirit, right? How did they even dare doing this, right? Um, and the respect for the details, the respect for the project management, the respect for dealing with the, uh, with the, with the un, um, unpredictable. And again, always comes back to, I think what we need to apply to systems as well, right? You think of, just a thought that I love, you think of Apollo 13, right? It, the reason it came back to Earth was not because it was well-engineered. It came back to Earth because it was operated well. That's the difference, right? That's why all successful products, all successful um, projects are ultimately run and managed. You manage if something is bigger than a single person can do, right? And as we build out these huge systems, where everything is essentially break a brack, right? You need to have management, right? You either build something that is tested and in all conditions you know will work, then you're back to a really slow velocity because everything needs to be tested. You're essentially pouring concrete, right? Or you do break a brack and then you need management, right? And that's the continuum. And you as business need to choose where you want to be. Do you want to be the Stone Age or in concrete? Or do you want to be nimble and agile? Well, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I think that's a, a good closing for this episode of Adventures in Podcast. And I want to thank our uh, guest, uh, Tobias. What was it? Kunze. Kunze. Right? Kunze is fine. Kunze is fine. Okay. I'm used to anything. Yes. <laughs> and our, our fellow panelists, uh, Jeffrey Roman. Excellent. My name's Tyler Bird, and we'll see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.